0: La, 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 wait till I get my
1: money
0: right. Welcome to the Reform Millennials Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Pachalik. Tune in each week to get public market updates from my friend and co-host, Joel Shackleton. Joel is a portfolio manager and partner at Gold Investment Management based in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Beyond just market updates, the goal of this podcast is to help millennials better invest their time and money by taking advantage of long-term market trends. Whether that means finding the right startup to work for, private Canadian company to angel invest in, or new ways to protect and grow assets you've already accumulated, you're in the right spot. You can find our filtered lists of private Canadian companies, as well as additional context to topics mentioned in each episode by subscribing to our newsletter at reformmillennials.com. That's reformmillennials.com.
2: Welcome to another edition of the Reform Millennials Founder series. This is my favorite series in our podcast, I don't know, weekly output because I get to talk to fun and interesting people. On today's episode, we have Flamingo, which is a Calgary-based commission-free fractional investment app that uses an automated pies and slices model. With just $1, users can buy a portion of a share or a ETF and build their custom pie or their portfolio while still enjoying the benefits of investing. The app also includes a feature called Flamingo Central, an in-app experience where users can learn about the stock market through free bite-sized video and written content. Earlier this month, Flamingo announced the closing of its pre-seed round after raising 1.88 million Canadian dollars. So let's jump into this. And I know this seems ridiculous, but to me, How'd you guys come up with Flamingo? Where the heck does that come from?
1: Yeah, great question, Joe. So I think the big thing is when we were actually considering the name of our company, one of the things that uh, we had previously done with former companies was spend months and months trying to decide what would the perfect name be. That's one of those early startup founder mistakes that many founders make is I need the perfect uh, perfect name, perfect logo, need business cards, website has to be amazing, T-shirts, and now we're a real company. Well, really, that doesn't, that doesn't make a company. That is all, uh, those are vanity metrics or you know, vanity things that you do to make yourself feel nice. So one of the things that we, when we were deciding the name for this company, we said, we're not gonna spend too much time on the name. Even though the name is important, we'll just start off by doing a number corp. And we gave ourselves a 48 hour timeline. We said, hey, if in within 48 hours, we cannot find a name that we like for this company, we will go ahead and throw in a number corp. So uh, my co-founder and I, Joe, while we were at his place, we're spending, you know, the next 48 hours just finding a name. So we said, okay, this is our timeline, what can we do? I started searching all of these cool companies in the fintech space, looked at Revolut, Monzo, Chime, Robinhood, Public, all of these awesome companies, but nothing was resonating with us. then we came across this startup in san francisco called alpaca and alpaca is a a commission-free broker api helps you know platforms begin and we thought wow what a cool company amazing branding we've never seen anything like it where the the name of this company in the fintech industry especially in banking is an animal so as a joke my co-founder says to me why don't we name ourselves flamingo and so we jumped onto flamingo.com and we said okay see if that's taken. Flamingo.com was taken because it's a massive hotel down in Vegas. (laughs) And then we asked ourselves, you know, okay, what else can we do? We said to ourselves, well, hey, we're creating an investment app. We're creating a company that's very different. It's unorthodox. It's not part, you know, of what we've seen in in, in Canada before. So why not even spell our name Flamingo different? So we threw in an H and we said, our Flamingo is F-L-A-H, Mingo. And then we started to say, wow, okay, this, this sounds pretty good. com is open, .c is open. And then from there, we just threw in a marketing spin in. every single investor is unique and different. So the investing experience for them should be different. Flamingos are one of the most unique birds on this planet. And our flamingo is even more unique because it's spelled with an H. And so when you use the flamingo app, your experience is catered to you, creating pies and slices, investment portfolios that are just catered to the companies that you love.
2: I have a prediction. If my son, who's eight months, starts investing through Flamingo, I feel like everyone's just going to refer to you as Mingo. And it's I. Most of his generation, or my brother, who's ten years younger than me, his generation, calls Instagram Insta. Yeah, it's just it's and it kind of sounds good. I kind of like it. Anyways, that's really neat. I kind of love it. I now i I need to go look into this alpaca. But I kind of want to talk about your your most recent seed fund raise. It's pretty exciting. Of course, you being a Calgary-based company, can you kind of, I have a few follow-up questions here, but just talk about the new raise. Let's be as vague or as descriptive as you'd like to be, but I'd love to hear about the cap table. Did you guys have a lead investor? Those sorts of things.
1: Cool. Yeah. So first, I think a big shout out to all of our investors that have supported us through uh, the last few months while we were raising, you know, we have amazing backers. We have about forty investors in our cap table that have, you know, believed in us and uh, given us their capital so that we can utilize it to build this amazing company. In regards to how that came to fruition, you know, we realized that to actually get a platform of this nature off the ground, the costs are quite high. We have regulatory aspects, legal costs. We have, you know, a myriad of fees that we have to pay and. Uh, to even just cut the surface to get this to happen, we we needed capital. So founders put in some capital early on and thereafter we started to you know go out and see, well, okay, if we really want to Make this happen. How do we actually do this? So, started to ask friends and family, and we realized that there was some interest in putting in capital. So, first we did a, a little bit of, of an angel funding where we got friends and family together and they put in some capital. Then, really, the snowball effect started happening. Uh, we got a potential acquisition offer, and we, you know, kind of walked away from that. And, and at the same time, while we were doing all of this, we started to get a lot of interest from other investors as well. And we said, "Screw it, let's just increase our raise." Them. you know, we have a lot of interested investors that really love the product, believe in the vision, so to oversubscribe the round. So the check sizes that we took were in between 25 to 150K. We did not have a single lead investor. Instead, we had you know investors that had invested between 100, 150K and slowly all those checks came together to, to equally raise the amount that we put together.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I've you know, looked at a lot of businesses at, at similar stages and that's kind of how the way it starts. It's like, we're doing a friends and family round. We need a couple hundred grand. We have interest, and then you see how uh, people are receiving it, and they're excited. And it just—it everything. That's just how life works, you know. The momentum is hard to to deny, and it's intoxicating. And then, of course, great things happen. So, obviously, putting together this fundraising, I find to be especially at the beginning. It's like your first million bucks. You're in my industry, the first ten million that you can get under management. It's always like the hardest part for you guys. What was the most challenging part putting together the fundraising? I mean, friends and family seems to be always the easiest I mean, because they trust you, they know you. But what was the most challenging thing for you?
1: Yeah, I actually have to disagree with that. Friends and family is actually the hardest. And the reason I say that is because when you lose or, or there's a potential of not having that capital, you need to see these people everywhere you go. When I yeah. go home, I still live with my parents, and my dad's like, How's it going? And then I know when he's asking me how it's going, it's saying, hey, how's my investment doing? I don't really care about you. But you know, I mean, jokes aside, it's it's actually, I would say more difficult because sure, they believe in you, but the belief is there because there's also that trust. So that initial capital, I would say for any founder, when you're going out and raising VC or you're asking any external investor, you need to look inward and say, hey, what's the skin I have? You know, when you have your own you know, family capital in there, that, that makes a big difference. And from there, I would say it's like, you know, the investing cycle is really a sales funnel. You need to concentrate it where you have as many conversations and try to get as many introductions as possible and things slowly start to cascade. We pitched about 150 investors, and you know we really we put it um, in a very concentrated period of time within 60 days we had closed. So the uh, the goal was to have as many meetings in a short period of time so that we can actually create momentum. And whether it was from angel groups, family venture groups, we do have a we do have a fund that invested in around. We do have an institution as well, so we had some capital in there that was some of that anchor capital that helped us get get some of the other checks in. But it's a very exhausting experience It's a time job on its own. And many people don't realize that they say, well, yeah, I'm going to go fundraise. Unless you're a repeat entrepreneur that's had exits, it is very difficult to raise capital. You know, I would say nine tenths of Albertan founders cannot raise capital. Um, and especially just because of where we live, you know, tech is still very nascent and it's slowly coming up. And you know, we're an oil, gas city. Most of the people that you know are in the province or around you. so understanding that it's, it's a difficult task. And if you're going to endeavor down it, you need to do it as a full-time job. And it becomes a sales funnel where you speak with one person, you hear no, you just keep on going. You have to keep on filling the top of your funnel until you get a yes. And then you keep on hearing no, yes, right? And so slowly you start getting this ratio of individuals and the yeses now start getting another yes on board and another yes on board. And I think it's a cascading factor that really helps out. That's the first thing I would say. Second is a lot of funds, especially in Canada, they're very risk averse. They like to, you know, and I've been very openly chatting about this. They like to say we are pre-seed investors, first check in. And then when you get to them, it's like, please tell us about the 100,000 customers you have, the momentum you've gained on your app, all of your KPIs. We want to see month over month growth of 4,000%. I'm you know, sorry. You know, I'm just I'm exaggerating the metrics, but it's like, but. You told me that you're an early stage investor and that you understand that we need your capital to actually make this happen. So you know, what it really comes down to is we were fortunate enough to have phenomenal advisors that helped us get introductions to some of the top VC firms across Canada. We spoke into 90% of the firms. And one of the things we realized is if you want to raise money in Canada, the first round has to be angel unless you're a repeat founder. Second round that you do is most of the time institutions, and that's when the VCs start coming in. And then the last thing I would say is pitching is difficult. It is not a skill that everyone has, and you need to start treating it in your funnel as who are my leads? Who are the best people that I know that I want to get capital from? And this is feedback that I got from a entrepreneur down in SF when I was spending time down there at Draper University where you actually break down your investing funnel into three parts you give a one two and a three your ones are your the investors i want the most and these people i know will give capital but listen you need to hit it out of the park then you have your twos these are investors that you would love to have on your cap table They may be strategic or not but at the same time they're maybe a little bit easier to get. then you have your threes these are investors that you probably already know are going to say no to you but those are the investors that you start off with because they're gonna play hardball with you. They're gonna ask you tough questions. They're gonna ask you things that you have no clue about. And those are the individuals that you wanna interact with. Because once you hear all, the 50 no's and they've asked you all the hard questions, when you go to your twos and ones, it's become robotics, it's sad to say, but you've been through it, you've done it 50 times. It's, it's normal, right? I love the way that you,
2: um, you explain that because I don't think I've ever been able to explain it as well as that. You did such a great job, but for myself, it's very similar in my industry. It's where um, the first, 50 people i pitched like it was basically me developing the knowledge and the robotic answering of the questions properly and also doing a good enough job explaining it to them so that they trusted what i was saying was true and there is something too being said for you just got to take some pitches and swing at them and then eventually start hitting them and in your case, the way in which you, you have that one, two, three lined up, I really like that. Obviously, the fundraising parts all, it's all completed. I've always <laughs> thought that in Alberta, founders don't. Yeah, you grab those advisors. But can you name a few places in which people should look or ask for that advisorship? Like, I know those people are out there, but some people just don't even know where to start.
1: Yeah. So I'll give you an example. We had a uh, and the regional head of the Toronto Stock Exchange. Burke, shout out to you. You're an awesome guy. You know, Burke was one of our advisors. How do we get that connection? My co-founder played soccer with Burke seven years ago. And (laughs) it it was us looking through our Rolodex of people that we had met over the years. The fact is your network is your net worth in the end of the day. Unless you're worth $100 million, listen, it's going to be quite difficult for you uh, to get into these doors. And so you really need to start looking at who you know, because you may not know um, the person that you need to know, but with one meeting to another, you'll get there. And the example is starting a broker dealer. I've been investing for 10 years, but I've never started a broker dealer before. I've been a retail investor. The back end of that process is extremely difficult. You have to go through many registration requirements and the bar is extremely high because you're dealing with people's money. And Canada is one of the most heavily regulated environments in the world. So we went for one meeting and it's like, ah, well, hey, can you introduce me to someone else? And you go to, to another meeting and to another. But meeting number four, we had Burke and a, you know, a few other advisors on board and slowly what ends up happening um, is you start having other people coming to you and saying, hey, I think I can offer value here. And we had to actually start saying no to people because we had our inner circle. The advice I have is you have two types of advisors, I would say. One is the strategic individuals that you're bringing on board that are extremely helpful that you know are going to go head over heels. Those are the people you you most of the time compensate them with options, right? And then you have your secondary group of individuals, and these are very coveted industry professionals, but they just don't have the time or they won't go out of their way multiple times for you. And those are the individuals that you tap into once every three months, or you're giving your investor update to, and you're just keeping regular cadence. So they feel that they're part of the journey, but they may not be part of the inner workings of everything happening. So it's look into your network, ask people, Go out there, LinkedIn is a powerful tool. Definitely, if you need to get LinkedIn premium, it's 30 days free, so try it out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh man, I've done that before. Okay, so I just wanna switch gears a little bit here. Uh, can you kinda of talk about your product launch? So you're flirting with something in Q1. Can you kinda of speak to that? Give us a better underse-
1: understanding of what's coming? Sure, maybe, let me quickly just break down. Uh, I know uh, Jay, you did an amazing job at the start letting uh, the audience know what Flamingo is, but let me give my uh, my quick elevator pitch. Flamingo, yep. is, uh, Flamingo is looking at pioneering the next generation of investing in Canada. We use a unique model called Pies and Slices where every single stock or ETF that a user loves becomes a slice of their pie. This Pies and Slices model essentially is a portfolio theory where you're creating your own ETFs. So what that looks like is you can add over a hundred different stocks into a pie um, and with the power of fractional shares, uh, you can actually invest in these companies for as well as $1. If I want to put five bucks into Amazon, now that's a slice of my pie. But it doesn't just stop there. I can actually create over 10 different pies. And now these pies can actually be different allocations for investment styles that are like. You can have one pie for ESGs, one pie for stocks that are more speculative, one pie for tech. So really that's the totality of the Flamingo model is fractional shares, automating your investing. And then the cherry on top is even an amazing learning platform that's integrated. So the Q1 2022 launch, what does that actually mean? What does it entail? We're really looking forward uh, to getting this product out there where we're looking to have our early waitlist users test out the application. We know the team's been working extremely hard to actually get everything together. And the goal is, as we release this initial product, is to either validate or invalidate some of the assumptions that we have on our platform. We believe we have an amazing application. Now, the goal is to make sure that we get valuable user feedback so that we can use that to predicate what our future potential roadmap looks like and build additional features products based off that after we do our q1 launch we'll be doing another raise and we'll be doing a seed financing that'll help us get to the uh, the next level
2: i love it i mean it's almost as though you said that before for me anyways i've been incredibly excited to see the amount of capital kind of flowing into this i call it the fintech space whatever pre-2017 let's say this was not interesting For most seed seed investors, A to B to C venture just wasn't touching it. It felt as though Visa, MasterCard, big banks were going to eat you and you had no chance. And now you have Square trading at like a $300 billion valuation, PayPal, $300 billion valuation. They're buying Pinterest this morning. You have, I would say, a renewed invigoration around financial products. And now I'd say that a large portion of the VC dollar pie is headed in this space. And that's exciting. As somebody who has decided to take the banks head on in in regards to providing services versus them, I think that it's just, I couldn't be more excited about it. But I wanna know where does Flamingo kind of fit into the current FinTech landscape?
1: Yeah, great question, Joe. So when it comes down to customers understanding or even just looking at the overall FinTech landscape, generally speaking, Flamingo is an application that's focused on Gen Z and millennials. And really it comes down to the experiences that we've had using the banks and using what's out there currently i've used Questrade for the last 11 years up until recently their application for about the last 15 years wasn't phenomenal and they were one of the only broker dealers that offered discount brokerages prior to wealth simple coming into the, the space or interactive but even those platforms you know they're, they're quite nice in regards to what they brought on flamingo is geared towards the experiences and building a simple, intuitive experience that is very powerful for millennial and Gen Z. And so we are a young team that understands the problems for these individuals, so we're building an application for them. That's number one. Second, when it comes down to Canada has stagnated and lacked in innovation in the FinTech space for a very long time. Look at our counterparts in the US and UK, very comparable countries, they've had a FinTech innovation for the longest time. You look at those to talk about the UK, you have Revolut, Monzo, you have some crazy companies like Starling in 26 the U.S. USS Robinhood, and you have Chine, you have all of these new startups coming. And in Canada, we have Old Simple, right? So there, there isn't much out there. And you know, the team at Old Simple has done a great job, but there's a lot more work to be done. And that's really where Flamingo comes in. We see ourselves as trailblazers that are coming to a hyper competitive environment. And the users will have a multitude of options of investment applications, but our focus is really geared towards. That amazing experience with that Gen Z millennial, and and you know the first thing we started doing was posting on TikTok. We actually have one of the largest TikTok followings, and it's not massive across you know our uh, competitors here in Canada. The focus is to educate people. That's where they're going to learn, and so our focus is there as well. And so with Flamingo, you know the focus is on uh, fractional shares, being able to buy as little as one dollar. Central users learning about the stock market, simple, intuitive design that's easy to use that users really love, and then finally. For us, the biggest thing is like as Flamingo users learn about the financial markets through our application, we are giving them the tools to actually allow them to be successful. And it's everything is centered around this learning aspect, because when you go out there and you want to talk about finances, finance is one of the most taboo things in Canada. The average Canadian has a university degree, but when you leave university, you don't know about RSPs, TFSAs, mortgages, interest rates. And, you know, when you jump into the, the, the employment environment, you need to know all of these things. So with Flamingo, our goal is to break down the barriers and really focus on financial literacy with the goal of helping 1 million Canadians over the next three years. And then as these users are learning and feeling empowered, we have phenomenal tools that are all encompassed within one application for them to be able to begin learning, start learning, uh, continue learning, and then from there, start using amazing tools from their learning experiences and start getting their hands dirty.
2: Well, you probably know this, but it would be really great if you could just like reach out to the the OGs of financial education that are from Edmonton, and the founders of Investopedia, like right? the four guys that started that. It's like Corey Jansen, I think, and Corey Wagner.
1: Yeah, I actually was told this by one of the, one of the VCs that we're speaking with. That Investopedia was an Alberta-based company. I haven't had an opportunity to speak with Corey, but he's aware of our platform. And Corey, if you're listening to the podcast, would love to sit down and uh, have a quick chat with you about your experiences in Investopedia for, for selling. But yeah, you know, I think that's super cool as well. We have the, the founders of the financial education for the stock market in Alberta, right? So that's an inspiration as well.
2: I think their headquarters is actually New York City. But, the, but that being said, I do believe they both live and operate in Edmonton and Alberta, Edmonton. which is really cool. Because I don't care who you are, if you have ever Googled anything, you've used Investopedia for 100%. sure. So, I mean, man, if it's not them, it's Khan Academy, right? Exactly. for sure. yeah. So I think that the biggest push or the biggest change to the acceptance or just the interest in investing and then financial technology has been likely, I think, set off by COVID. We had nothing better to do. And now this is interesting. You have, like you had mentioned, you had TikTok, you've had people just kind of obsessing over these things, and now we're busy consuming ourselves with gambling or just whatever, taking chances on things. And what do you think th- this has done to at least in my opinion, the the five major bank dominance in Canada? Do you think that this is kind of like the beginning of the end of their whatever
1: fiveopoly they have? Good question. I think one of the the big things in Canada is we have a oligopoly, whatever you want to call it, in various industries. You look at uh, the media industry with Rogers and Shaw. The banking industry is very similar. And I think uh, Senator Colin Deacon has been very openly speaking about open banking, how we need innovation so that startups can start actually competing with the banks. And really what it comes down to, it's consumer-led finance, right? Consumers want to be able to access their data but their data is stored by the banks, and and so I think that there's, there's a change coming, and it's gonna it's gonna be coming quick. You know, the uh, Liberal government has uh, looked at bringing open banking by the end of twenty twenty two, and by twenty twenty three, by Jan they want to actually start pushing it forward. Those are big changes that are coming and whether the banks like it or not, whether startups like it or not, whether people like it or not, they're coming because consumers want it. Banks have been around for a very long time, right? There are institutions that are 100 plus years old and they have sustainable business models. And the big side of it is the regulatory aspects that they've been able to create. There's big, large regulatory modes, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that goes into lobbying that makes it difficult for other companies to come in. Our focus, though, is tech and the usability, whereas the big banks are different. And there's a target audience that's um, you know, a lot bigger for them. You know, They're not just focusing on millennials, but they're focusing on individuals that are older, they're focusing on individuals that are younger. So they have a scattered focus. And and so that's, that's made it difficult for them to be able to hyper concentrate into one niche. And the way I see it is banks won't go away, but over time, there will be an equalization in power. There's going to be uh, a spread in regards to the dominance, um, and there'll be... Startups now that are um, coming into the space that slowly start taking some of that market share. The, uh, you know, the TAM is only so big, right? You know, it's called it a trillion dollars or maybe two trillion dollars. Right now, that TAM is completely held by the banks, but over time that it'll get spread out and then consumers will have the choice of whether they want to go to a bank, whether they want to go to a startup or whatever they like. And I think that's what'll happen over time. The dominance, it's a hard question, right? We even in the back end, we have uh, partnerships with, with some amazing banks to help us out. There's change coming, hard to say what that'll look like, but as a consumer, I'm very excited because now I have the opportunity to choose and my dollars are the way that I vote and wherever I put them is wherever I'm gonna support. And when you look at it, millennial and Gen Z individuals are really focused around having an amazing experience on mobile, banks took quite long to do that. I'm not sure if that directly answers your question, but.
2: No, it's funny. I I just listened to this recent podcast, Invest Like the Best, where they interviewed the founder and uh, current CEO of Upstart. And he talks a lot about how they're changing lending practices. And I felt as though their technology is disrupting the old way of how you lend out to people. I mean, it's always been credit scores, right? That's always your FICO, whatever. That's the only way that you yourself are. That's the number that goes through the system to determine whether or not you're investable. And they've decided that's stupid because that number is dumb. And they, I mean, just over the last two weeks, that stock has gone absolutely nuclear. And I think it has a lot to do with the story that they're telling um the disruption that's love that it's obviously bringing but i think that this is what's more important is that our main five banks here people think of all the banking services that they provide like grabbing cash all those sorts of things but it's truly it's simple the major thing that matters most is the lending the, is the pillar of banking it is the middle that is what all of the economics derive itself around everything else is just like something little, right? And I think that's where you guys come in. And I, I don't mean to say your TAMs little, that's not what I mean. But what I mean is that you guys aren't determining whether or not someone's lendable. What you're doing is you're helping people invest. And you're making it fun and easy. And, and the technology, bringing the technology, uh, it makes it educational, it makes it something that they can then take upon themselves. Whereas banking, that's, that is that is the heart that beats all the blood out. And I'm excited to see that kind of disrupted. And at the end of the day, I think that all of the disruptions going to happen around the edges, and you guys are doing a fantastic job making this, bringing something to Canada that I'm excited about because I want to see more of this. So if people are still listening here at this point in our podcast, they probably want to know what the economics of Flamingo are. What makes the cash register ring for you? Because you're not doing this for free. Because if it is free for us, that makes that means we're the product.
1: So what's going on? Yeah, great question. In the US, the answer to that is, yes, you are the product in Canada. It's a little bit different. I'll explain why. The reason why commission pre-investing is, you know, able, to, and it started off with Robinhood in the US, they were able to offer that is because of payment for order flow. They pretty much take the order flow that uh, they receive from customers and sell it to hedge funds. I am not licensed to talk about if that practice is good, bad, ethical or not, but it started off from Bernie Madoff. So I think that's kind of speaks for itself. So now let's talk about how Canadian platforms make money. That uh, revenue source that is driven from PFOP is usually substituted by FX fees. So when you're buying U.S. securities, you have a foreign exchange fees that you end up paying. It's the same foreign exchange fees are the, the fees that you pay when you want to do money transfers, buy U.S. dollars, do foreign transactions, or even if you're paying your Netflix bill. The banks are charging you 3% and you just look at it and say, oh, I thought, my, I, thought I was paying $14.99, but you actually got charged $17.99 so similar for us where flamingo first makes uh, its money off of the foreign exchange fees that we charge on the dollars that we have converted onto the platform for investing the cool thing with us is compared you know compared to some of our competitors we do offer usd accounts so you don't have to keep on paying fx fees every time you trade us equity because us equities are the bulk of equities when you're buying apple amazon disney these are the companies that people want with flamingo we charge a flat rate and so when you Invest, you uh, pay the foreign exchange fee, and then you can hold your US dollars. And then when you liquidate your account, we charge that fee as well. Second, we also make money off of the uninvested cash sits in the user's account. The nice thing with Flamingo is uh, all dollars are CDA insured, um, and so the assets that are held under uh, Flamingo are held with a custodian that secures those assets, and there's never a commingling happens between our own assets. Though, as those funds sit in the, the account, you know, the average person, I would say, has a reserve of 10 to 40 percent of their investments that just sit in cash. So on a daily basis, we receive interest that's paid by the big banks to us on those reserves. Uh, it's an nominal amount right now, but over time, it'll grow. And. Pre-COVID, it was almost uh, as high as 3.5%. So that's second way. And then third, we have a phenomenal offering called Flamingo Plus. It is our premium offering where users are able to pay a flat monthly fee uh, to access some more robust features the amazing thing is we are giving Flamingo Plus on us for the first 5,000 users. So if you aren't on our waitlist, you, you should be signing up for Flamingo. That's flah Sign up for our waitlist and get Flamingo Plus on us for six months. Really, it's a cool offering where we offer additional features for more sophisticated investors or for investors that are looking for a more catered experience from what we offer to the general public. So
2: I have a quick little story about FX fees. And uh, this is literally something I deal with my clients all the time. So let's say they bank with RBC and they have whatever, $10,000 in U.S. and they want to convert it to their Canadian account so that they could take it out. Guess what RBC was charging yesterday on that conversion? 4%. 652 basis. No 6%. way. Yeah. Wow. From spot. So <laughs> the, the current day's trading spot They were charging an additional 6.52% on that money, which is mental. Unbelievable. Like we do it for our clients for 20 basis points, but like that's because they're with us in the business forever. But like that is, if you wonder how RBC is printing money and people don't even notice, it's just absolutely insane. So anyways, I just want people to kind of digest that. Obviously, Flamingo is helping you there. Your bank isn't a hero all the time. So (laughs) they do make money, a lot of it. So, I kind of want to jump into some final questions here. As an up and coming Canadian startup found, at least. Sure, you guys are just you're killing it right now. I think that this is something that is difficult for a lot of people. But what do you see as a as the the most obvious opportunity for entrepreneurs and early stage engineers, maybe even project managers. So like, I think that most people getting into the space, um, maybe identify themselves as those things, whether it be an engineer or a project manager. What is there? What are the possibilities here in Canada? Where would you be focusing if you're not focusing on finance?
1: Yeah. Great question, Joe. I'd, I'd say a few areas. Uh, one of the really interesting ones is remote work. If you look at deal, they just raise like a massive amount. You know, we use deal for, you know, to pay our, for employees. It's a massive opportunity because the world has gone remote first. So understanding that we are actually recording a podcast virtually and not being in the same cities, we're able to do that today. So what does it actually mean for the future? And it really comes down to where are you able to offer value? That's one Second is creator economy. Creator economy has always been there. You know, creator economy is growing big when the sharing economy is growing big. Sharing economy kind of died off. Airbnb, Uber, those guys are kind of the guys that stayed alive. But creator economy still continued to grow and amplify and due to TikTok and, you know, all of the various social medias that have come out, creators are actually able to make a real difference and have communities, creator economies is massive. So what tools can you create to enable the power of a community doesn't have to be a creator economy community, but enabling communities is massive. A third one for me would be data. I think data is a new gold. I don't think I know data is a new gold. So in the end of the day, we're going towards a revolution that's happening where if you um, are not paying for the product, you are the product. But consumers don't like that either, right? So (laughs) it comes down to Facebook, Google, where we have privacy laws changing. But think about a world where you control your data. And uh, I, and I literally mean this where you control it. You tell people what they can and can't do and what they can and can't know. Now, let's say the tools out there are all the same. You want a more catered experience, whether that be for health, for finance, whatever that looks like. You actually offer your data to platforms so that they can create a curated experience for you. How phenomenal would that be if I hopped onto my trading application and my app looks very different than someone else's? Or if I'm on a fitness app and it's completely catered to things that are, you know, around me, whether that be the way I eat, the way I sleep, the way I run, the way, whatever that looks like, I'm the one opting in to allow these platforms to securely utilize my data for the purposes and then build and create amazing experiences for me. I think those are three really interesting spaces that, you know, if I wasn't in the fintech space, I would definitely be
2: looking at. I thought Bitcoin
1: was new gold. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Okay. So in addition to that, I find that the Canadian government has its teeth and claws kind of, I don't know, wrapped around our entrepreneurs. What would you say is is something that the provincial and federal governments could do more of to incentivize entrepreneurs to better compete with the United States? I find that it needs to be, we need to do a change of mindset, but I think you would have a better understanding or maybe even more insight into this than I would.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I spent three months down in SF. so I, I saw what Silicon Valley startups look like. They do not look like what Alberta-based startups look like. And I don't say this in a negative manner. I just say that it's a systemic issue where, and I read this, I read this on LinkedIn, someone posted once, and they had spent a weekend down in SF. And I spent three months down there. And I'm like, how do I describe the difference to someone? And the way they worded it, it was expertly well. It's Alberta founders or Canadian founders are building Castles in the sandbox, while they're building skyscrapers down there, and the difference is, if someone is taking a bucket of sand and they're playing in a sandbox, versus right beside you, someone is building a massive sea tower. You're gonna know, look up and at that, be like, "Hey, what am I doing wrong?" Right. So what it what it comes down to is that there's a change in mindset that needs to happen. So we need to start taking our failures as wins. You know, you know, if you fail the company, like listen, at the end of the day, in SF. The average person has failed six companies before they've actually gotten success. But listen, company number seven, what was the one that was a, not a unicorn but a decacorn or bigger, right? So, right. I think I think that's the first thing is we need a systemic change in mindset. But that only comes where we have the support. Alberta, especially, is a, is an oil gas city. You know, I can talk about Calgary. We got some phenomenal wins over the last little while. But you know, one of the things I would say is. Those wins are because of the entrepreneurs, not because of the people running the the province, right? And I think it's very transparent because there needs to be a lot of work that needs to be done. I think better incentives by using tax dollars where they should be put, it's great. And an example of that is why doesn't Alberta government start one of the largest venture capital funds? You spent a billion dollars on a pipeline that's been lost. What if you took that same billion dollars and started a VC fund? 50% of the companies that you invest will fail. The other 30% will give you a one-to-one ratio back. 20% Twenty percent of them, and this is the interesting part. Out of that, maybe you know, fifteen percent of them will give you a two to three x return. But then the five percent um, of that, they're going to give you a hundred x return and pay back the billion dollars ten back. And you're supporting jobs, and you're helping create entrepreneurs that will go on and build more and more. And if you really want an ecosystem to thrive, that for me would be an interesting opportunity. I think there's a massive opportunity in pre-seed funding. There is no pre-seed investor, an institutional investor in Alberta. Anyone that tells me there is, I don't believe it. Show me that they've actually written 15 checks in pre-seed companies when they have an idea, when there's two, two people sitting in their basement or at a coffee shop. No, they haven't done it. Sure, there might be some angels that are doing it, but not at an institutional level. Pre-seed funding, the gap there is massive. So I think that utilizing taxpayers' dollars where they make sense is an amazing opportunity. Listen, you don't have to do a billion. Start off with 10 and then see where that goes i would also say second is incentivizing entrepreneurs and tech talent to stay companies like clio that were massive success stories of edmonton are not in edmonton sure they <laughs> came back but their hqs are still in vancouver why did that happen there wasn't the right resources there wasn't the right tech talent wave also left and uh, wave came back right because it really came down to it just wasn't the right resource allocation you know companies in alberta right now even us are struggling to find the right talent is extremely difficult when you know we're competing against large incumbents like Benevity, Simmons, Solium, larger, you know, we raise a nominal amount. We can't be spending 250000 dollars a year on software. So maybe the government comes in and subsidizes some of those costs. And lastly, we had an amazing indoor tax credit. Where did it go? It's not here anymore.
2: Oh, don't right. get me don't even be started on that. <laughs> if you listen to my podcast from the beginning, I was complaining about that as the No, the UCP government was coming in. I'm like, don't you dare get rid of this. Sure so, I did. But uh, I do love a lot of what you're saying. I think it's fantastic. And if I could add one thing, I think, and Alex Danko, who uh, used to work for Chamath, now works on the finance team. It's Shopify, has a really good blog that he writes. And in that blog, he talks about the mentality of wealthy people in Canada versus those in America. And it's just... Infinite games versus finite games. And Albertans, and I'm sure you experienced this and you kind of even touched on it in, your, in our chat here. They want to see revenue growth models. They want to see when they're going to start seeing a return on their investment. And if they don't see one immediately, they're not going to write you a check. Whereas if you go down into America, you have these very wealthy, very successful people that have already hit their home runs. They see themselves in you. And they're going to write you that check being like, I like your TAM. I like the idea. I understand that you're probably going to burn money for 10 years. But the the equity appreciation is going to be massive. And I think that you got the stones. And then they do it. And then you become wealthy. And then you start doing it for others, right? It's like that feedback effect that we need to see in Canada, which we just don't have.
1: Yeah, I think the last thing I'd say to that is GitLab just IPO'd. If if you've heard the GitLab story, their uh, revenue multiples are 100x, and they're not profitable. (laughs) But the network effects that they've created is massive. They did 152 in revenue, but they're worth 15 billion. The unit economics don't make sense. I agree. But what do they have is they have the power of being able to sustain a community over time, which will actually reap benefits that sustainable business models don't. The unit economics sometimes doesn't make sense, but when you actually look at companies like Uber, Airbnb, yeah, you know, they're not profitable, but they're still massive companies that now might become a Facebook, right? Facebook was not profitable at one point, and now it's one of the most profitable companies in the world and one of the largest companies. So I think just wrapping your head around those things and being able to take risks that sometimes might be, you know, on paper different in regards to, maybe the numbers don't make sense, but you have something in your stomach saying, hey, Feel like this is a winning horse? We take a risk, you know. We have in Alberta the most millionaire per capita in, in Canada. Show me where they are, because listen, <laughs> whenever I walk around, all I see is, hey, did you know that uh, downtown Calgary has a thirty percent vacancy? I'm like, well, I thought we had billions of dollars. Where where are those billions of dollars? Because if they're sitting under beds, you're losing it on inflation. So I don't know. <laughs>
2: As somebody who works with a few of those people, I know exactly where it is and it's shoved in real estate and all they want to do is they want to refinance and then they want to improve it a little bit, go to the bank, refinance, improve it a little bit, go to the bank, refinance, and then they'll rent it out to people. That's their idea of investing in the future. I think that's changing, though. People like you, a lot of the people that I interview, I think... It's exactly where I want to be. These are the stories I want to hear. It keeps me excited. I'm super bullish on Alberta. I think we got the tax incentives that are there to that can beat out the competition. I do believe that we have an incredible education system because uh, it's churning out people like you. And I just, I'm super pumped about it. So thank you so much for uh, coming on. I do appreciate your time. And I look forward to following along. I might even just become, for fun, I mean, I'm gonna to have to disclose all of this, but like I might even come be one of your first 5,000, so. Super
1: excited, Joel. Thank you so much for having, uh, having me on and great conversation.
2: Absolutely, so I'm gonna read a quick disclaimer here. The discussion topics on these podcasts are provided for general information purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. This week's podcast is brought to you by Good Lawyer, Canada's leading legal marketplace for startups and entrepreneurs. Good Lawyer connects you with experienced corporate employment and IP lawyers across Canada who can incorporate your new company, review your contracts, file your trademarks, and provide just about any other legal service your business needs. All upfront prices, no billable hours. I'm involved in multiple businesses, and I keep going back to good lawyer myself because it's pretty easy and I actually trust it. It's just simple. So next time you need a lawyer for your business, go check out good lawyer at goodlawyer.ca. use promo code reformed to get your first advice session on the house.
0: Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you want additional context or links to any of the podcasts or articles we mentioned head over to our website, it's reformmillennials.com. While you're on the site, make sure you subscribe to our weekly newsletter. It not only has the list of Canadian companies we're talking about, but also the private slide decks of those still accepting angel investments. By the way, this should be common sense, but the podcast and our website are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Joel does work for Gold Investment Management and all opinions expressed by him, myself, or any podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of GIM. Clients of Gold Investment Management may actually hold positions discussed in the podcast.